I think too often journalists are becoming advocates for what is a very big problem, but it's our job to, to describe things how it is and to describe the negative impacts of potential climate change qualities. For example, certain policies could make energy uh, prices more expensive for the lowest income people. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't act on climate change, but that's to highlight uh, the potential uh, consequences of certain policy. And I think there's not enough of that in the, in the journalism space right now, as climate change is very understandably and rightfully so becoming a greater concern around the world. I'm firmly of the belief that you're either learning or dying. And when people get out of the education system, they don't have much else to learn. The average American reads like a book after graduating, like a book, not multiple books a year. And that's terrible when it comes to Alzheimer's health performance, but also happiness and up-leveling yourself. That's why I'm so excited to tell you guys about our new partner, Brilliant.org. This is a company completely flipping the expensive, excessive memorization education system on its head. Whether you want to program Python, learn algebra or calculus, quantum computing, build neural networks, or like me, just want to up-level your logic to be the next Sherlock Holmes, Brilliant is the place to go to learn math, science, and computer science, and actually have fun in the process. One of my biggest goals with this podcast is to inspire more of you guys to go for it with your dreams. And I can't think of a better way to do that than by giving you the skills needed to build and change the world. Whether you're listening to one of our space episodes and want to figure out the actual science behind launching one of these rockets, or you're interested in AI or quantum computing and want to learn some of the ins and outs to get into those fields, Brilliant.org is the place to go. To support the podcast and learn more about Brilliant, go to brilliant.org slash disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link get 20% off the annual premium subscription and know that you'll be supporting us in the process because our advertisers, in addition to our patrons, are what help us make this podcast sustainable and long-term successful. And with Brilliant especially, training people to be their best and to change the world in the process. Brilliant.org slash disruptors for more details. I want to take a quick time out to give you guys a personal update. Many of you know I've been working on my dream of becoming a sci-fi author. Well, now I've got a couple sci-fi books and techno thrillers coming out soon. Do you want to help me and join my advanced beta reader team and get free or deeply discounted copies of my upcoming books to review and help me improve the stories? If you're a fan of Michael Crichton, Daniel Suarez, A Good Dystopian, or Epic Fantasy, you'll love my writing. If you join and share your feedback, it would mean the world for me and my writing career. Seriously, I'd really appreciate it. If you visit mattward.io slash book and enter your details, then you'll be notified and occasionally selected to pre-read some of my books before everyone else. Share your thoughts, work directly with me to help me make the story better, and much more. I want to give you guys an epic thanks for listening to the podcast, especially for folks interested in the books. And again, if you want to get my books before they come out before anyone and help me make this writing career a success, please visit mattward.io slash book to join and get your free early copies. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The media and news are under attack. But if there's one thing we can agree on, it's that climate change is real. Today, we've got Amy Harder on the program. Amy's one of the top national energy and climate change reporters in the country focused on distilling complex energy and climate topics to the masses. She's appeared on PBS's NewsHour, C-SPAN, Fox News, MSNBC, CBS, pretty much everywhere. And that's what she does. She helps educate the world on what is really happening with climate change and does it with a completely unbiased approach, just looking at the facts and being apolitical, which you'll see in this episode when we discuss the importance of journalistic integrity and neutrality and why it's eroding, how Trump transformed eco-policy, the state of climate change today, what we can do and where we can be hopeful, thoughts on carbon capture and what we could do to save more, the difference between U.S. and European startups and how they look at the future, why sustainability needs to be one of the drivers of success, why Amy's hopeful despite all of the doubt, hatred, and problems we see around the media and climate change movement as a whole, and why plastics are ruining our world in so many more ways than one. And now, without further ado, I give you Amy Harder. 
We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Amy, you're big on... I mean, it's tough to explain, really. Really, you're trying to save the world by preventing the climate apocalypse. What's the story? What got you here? Well, I say that I cover the intersection of energy and climate change. And I've been doing this beat for pretty much my whole professional career, so more than a decade at this point. And it's, it's evolved rapidly in that time. And it's been incredible from you know, a human and career perspective to see how this beat has changed and the challenges and the conflicts that are arising as climate change becomes a more pressing concern in the United States and around the world. What areas would you say have changed the most and what have changed the least in terms of what you've seen? I imagine some things still feel stale. Yeah, I would say that there has been a lot of change since President Trump um, went into the White House, partly uh, because of Trump, of course, but partly because of other things as well. I mean, climate change itself is um, becoming more palpable to people. And I think that's making it seem like a more tangible issue to more people than ever before. But of course, uh, I could not deny the impact of a president denying climate change makes it more of a relevant issue um, to the media, but also to, to the average public that had sort of taken for granted this idea that there was this scientific consensus that climate change and humans' impact uh, was a, a real thing that had been taken for granted. And so when Trump sort of from the bully pulpit denied this science, I think that really got a lot of people invigorated. I did a, a column for Axios. I have a weekly column here that showed that fundraising in environmental groups was are at all-time highs because of all this uh, opposition to Trump and his climate and environmental policies. How do you think we can use that to rebound in a a big way and fix some of the fix some of the woes, so to speak. I've seen some good stuff in terms of states putting forward basic regulations, etc, saying if the government's going to drop the ball, we're going to we're going to move the ball. Yeah, well, one thing that I am careful to do as a journalist in this space of energy and climate change is that I don't take sides and I don't advocate for one policy over another. So I'm careful to always emphasize that in my reporting, as I have written extensively, particularly in the beginning part of the Trump administration, that uh, climate change is very real. Humans are having uh, a, the driving uh, dominant impact over the last century. But beyond that, I don't, I don't say in my writing that, that the world needs to drastically reduce emissions. I say that scientists say that we need to drastically reduce emissions. And this is a subtle but really important distinction because journalists should not be advocates, in my opinion. So I can offer some commentary about how, how states really are being aggressive in uh, trying to take action absent the federal government. But I'm also here to be a reality checker. And the reality is, is that the states in the United States, even California, which by itself is one of the largest economies in the world, cannot make a dent in a topic like climate change without U.S. leadership. So I want to dance back to what you said earlier in terms of the importance of not choosing sides. Is that kind of like bringing a, a squirt gun to a knife fight and not knowing everyone else showed up with guns? I reject that uh, entirely. Although I have on occasion been accused of, you know, this idea that I, I don't, I don't uh, take a position like the view from nowhere can be criticized um, among some in the journalism and advocacy community. Uh, I, but I don't. I simply stop at the idea that climate change is real and that there is an impact. I think too often journalists are becoming advocates for what is a very big problem, but it's our job to, to describe things how it is and to describe the negative impacts of potential climate change qualities. For example, certain policies could make energy uh, prices more expensive for the lowest income people. Now, that's not to say we shouldn't act on climate change, but that's to highlight uh, the potential uh, consequences of certain policy. And I think there's not enough of that. In the, in the journalism space right now, as climate change is very understandably and rightfully so becoming a greater concern around the world. Do changing conditions force us to change norms of the past? For instance, Gandhi was one of the greatest leaders of all time in terms of let's have a, a peaceful protest. Yet if he, if he was in World War II's Germany, he would have been gassed in a gas chamber and we never would have heard of him. And do you have to change the game slightly? Because I feel like I, I do agree that both sides are playing opinionated baseball, but I think one side is much better organized and funded and effective at it. Yeah, I definitely think uh, that journalists should change the way they cover journalism and, and and this beat. And I think I've done that. And I think journalism writ large has. I would say a decade ago, 
uh, or even longer than that, you, you had a lot of media companies, including an outright climate denier uh, next to a climate scientist. And now you almost never see that. I think there's some TV uh, channels that still do that. But by and large, none of us do that. And I would never do that. When I say both sides, I don't mean the people who deny climate change is real and the people who say we need to act aggressively. I mean people who are, are fighting over the types of policies that we should pursue. Uh, for example, I did a, a story last year with the headline, Trump's uh, Pipeline of Climate Misinformation. And it was right after a spat of tweets that the president had sent joking and, and making other comments about climate change. It, it must have been cold outside when he did that. And I, I called up this sort of small and I would say shrinking number of people, mostly in Washington, D.C., that are pushing this, this false information about climate change. And I told them I'm writing a story and including their names. And would they like to comment on this story? But then I told them, I'm not going to quote you talking about how you think the science is wrong. But if you have a comment about this story, the fact that I'm including your name, I can include that. And it was it was it created an interesting afternoon of some tense and awkward conversations. But nonetheless, it's my responsibility to talk to these people and include them in the debate, because for better or worse, this is where we are with a president who is getting his information, misinformation on climate change from these people. And the public should know where he's getting this information. But it's also my job to not repeat that wrong information. It's a really, really hard balance. I, I would, I do not envy your position. I can be as opinionated as I want to be. I'm not pretending to be a reporter. Yeah, I, you know, I found the afternoon, fu you know, fun because I, I love my job. And I remember, you know, I, we have an open floor plan like most newsrooms. And, you know, the conversations I had with these people, and, and you can go look up the story to, to see who they are, but they were uncomfortable and awkward. And I've got Slack messages from my coworkers just going like, who the hell are you talking to? And, you, you know, so it was, you know, it was great. It was a story that I didn't think to write. It was uh, su suggested by my editor, just because, you know, I live and breathe this every day. I don't always notice the, the forest for the trees. And so for me, it was like, well, yeah, we know the Heartland Institute, for example, has been pushing false information on climate change for years. But it was my editor who was like, well, Trump is saying all of this. Where is he getting it? And, and that's sort of where the story came from. On a day to day basis, I don't spend much time talking to people who don't acknowledge the science because there's so many other far more interesting things to talk about. Out of curiosity, I want to get your personal opinion, not your opinion as a reporter. Do you think people that are pushing anti-science believe it or are using it? I think it's a mix. I think the influencers uh, probably know that they're on thin ice, uh, no pun intended. Um, but I also think that there's among the broader public, I think there is an understandable um, confusion might not be the right word, but sort of skepticism of, of, of big, complicated, century, millennial long problems. And, and I'm not saying that they're right to be skeptical. I'm just saying humans are inherently skeptical about things that, you know, scientists are trying to predict from centuries and millennia ago to, to then going out um, centuries um, from now into the future. I think it's the job of the media, um, but also other influencers such as think tanks to try to help uh, people understand that even if you personally can't understand it, that doesn't mean it's not correct. And, and that's something that I go back to. One thing that I often ask these influencers uh, when they start to talk about science to me and, and how they think the scientific consensus is wrong, I ask them what they got a degree in. One gentleman, and by the way, the most mostly gentlemen uh, as opposed to women, uh, one, one guy says something, he got a degree in, I think, engineering or something. And I said, what makes you think that you know, you, somebody who doesn't have a degree in climate science, why do you think that you know more than all of these scientists who do have the degrees in the expertise that's relevant? And so for me, when I talk to my family, some of them who don't acknowledge climate change, I try to appeal to them that way uh, because I don't know how to diagnose cancer, but if my doctor told me I had cancer, I would accept that diagnosis. And so I, I try to get away from the science itself because I'm not a scientist and I can't respond to some 
person who's denying the science argument that X, Y, Z happened, you know, but then I remember that, well, but, but the scientific consensus says this. And so, so that's how I go, go about it. I, I do think there is a shift happening and there's fewer people that are denying climate science. You can't change people's opinions by showing them facts. You have to change their opinion by appealing to their values. Someone really smart said that to me once, and they were talking about the the vaccine, non-vaccine movement. And it was, people aren't deciding something based off of science. They're deciding based off of their values. If you're natural and wholesome and earthy, then you probably don't want these vaccines in your body because the vaccine is being positioned as this synthetic thing that's being created by man. But if you flip that on its head, the vaccine is giving you something to allow your body's natural immune system to boost itself so that you don't have to go to the unnatural doctor and get the unnatural medicines to fight off the diseases that you shouldn't have had in the first place. And it's interesting, if you change that positioning to the values and tell people what you want to hear, you can very easily convince them either way. Yeah, I definitely think that the debate over action on climate change has very little to do with the science. To a certain degree, I, I, I think House Republicans in particular here in Washington are actually coming around to the idea that they can acknowledge, uh, partly because it's becoming a political issue for the issues, for the reasons I mentioned earlier about voters becoming more aware, but also because they're, they're feeling more comfortable accepting the science because they can push policies that are not nearly as sweeping as what Democrats are doing. And so I think that is appealing to their values. Sources who I talk to here in Washington, they say that for a, for a long time, Republicans disavowed the science because they thought the only step from disavowing the science to acknowledging the science was immediately to a carbon tax. Now that they, they and I'm not you know putting judgment on whether or not this is right, because again, I do try to be unbiased and, and fair and a very dicey. And I see you rolling your eyes, but that's not... <laughs> I'm, not ro- I'm not rolling my eyes so much as smiling, trying to figure out ways I can make you say something that you'll have to take a statement or a stand on. <laughs> that, I, that's totally, totally understandable. It, it's a fun topic that I think about a lot, trying to, to be unbiased in this area. But these Republicans are now feeling like they can accept the science, propose solutions that are not a carbon tax or something equally big, and they're comfortable in this space. And so now the next big debate here in Washington is whether or not Republicans will ever move out of this sort of small policy, you know, innovation, subsidies, things like that, if they'll move to something bigger. Because as I've written, scientists say that sweeping change needs to happen in the next 30 years. And most experts say that's going to be unlikely to occur with just sort of smaller innovation type subsidy bills. Yeah, it's you got to give people an out a way for them to win. If all of a sudden you try to change their worldview and it hurts too much, well, you can't even consider it. But if you go to Spain and you've studied a year of Spanish, suddenly you can kind of pick out the, the details and get by versus everything being just too overwhelming to even consider. It's, um, it's, just, it's, a, it's a, fun little, a fun little game. What are you most excited about now in terms of the climate space? This is not excited in terms of this is a big story, but excited in terms of what personally excites you? Well, one thing that I love about covering this beat is, for one, I've been able to do it for more than 10 years, and I haven't gotten bored. And I'm just being totally honest, you know, my job is a part of my life package, and I don't want to be bored, you know, for, you know, half of my life, uh, and most of my waking hours. And so I love how it's a little bit like peeling back an onion, there's just so much to cover. If I want to do you know, makes you cry. Well, no, it doesn't actually uh, make me cry. Uh, and, and, and But I fully respect and understand why there's a lot of people, including some really close friends of mine, who are very, very upset and concerned about this. I have friends who've chosen or who are thinking about not having kids because of climate change. And I fully respect those people. I'm just not one of those people to internalize climate change as this apocalyptic doomed future. But I understand that there's a lot of people out there who do, um, and and that's you know they're they're right. But I think it actually helps that I'm a little bit more dispassionate about this topic because I'm covering it uh, as a journalist as opposed to an advocate. You know, I someone once said that you know crime reporters are not expected to be are not expected to be vigilantes. You know, go out there and save crime. Just like I'm not supposed to go out there and advocate for climate change. And so it's a really subtle distinction 
that I think, again, people uh, can forget about when this problem becomes so overwhelming. I think part of the reason behind that is people become what they're incentivized to become, whether or not they realize it. As a reporter, you're supposed to be impartial. If a crime scene detective was emotional, they're not going to get very far in terms of being a crime scene detective when they see Jamie's brain splattered all over the floor. We kind of adapt ourselves to fit the fit the situation at hand. Um, I think I think that's a great comparison. And I think one of the things that worries me is that there are a lot of reporters getting that are crying, uh, not not literally, but are getting emotional with this issue. And I think it's important that we don't if we're going to be covering this issue as journalists. Of course, if you if somebody wants to go and be an advocate, that is more power to them. But I think, you know, in this such a high, highly polarizing environment, I know this idea of journalists being impartial is sort of out of fashion. But nonetheless, I remain of the mind that there is a need for it. Do you think it's out of fashion or do you think it's dying? Well, and that's, I, not, that's not a judgment call. That's just a, a fact call. Yeah, I think, you know, I'll say out of fashion. Uh, dead seems a little too final. Something can be out of fashion forever, um, but something sometimes it can come back. So I and I, I get this feedback from a lot of people. Uh, you know, I, I like to think that I garner respect from most people across uh, the spectrum of positions on this issue. I don't think I sit all that well with the, the, the crowd that doesn't acknowledge climate change. But uh, otherwise, I think I garner respect. And, and that's important because you know what? I want to talk to everybody. I want to talk to the CEO of Shell. I want to talk to Bill McKibben. And I want them to respect my work uh, as a whole, even if they don't like every single story. Because I'm trying to tell a whole story, not the story of just Shell or just Bill McKibben. Do you tell the greenwashing story? BP, the big oil companies really trying to push that out. It's like it's like Coke building a, a kid's playground. I definitely uh, have focused a lot on how the oil and gas companies are grappling with what is a growing pressure to be more transparent uh, on acknowledging climate change and also putting forth new business strategies to adapt to this warming world. And I think, yeah. And so I regularly point out just the other day, I wrote a story about how, you know, barely 5%, sorry, I think one or 2% of the, of the, in the oil and gas industry's overall CapEx is in technologies other than oil and gas. So yeah, I, I pointed out regularly and that's just part and parcel of the story. Do I, do I spend every story talking about how they have fought climate policy for decades? No, because that's not, I don't have the space to relitigate the past every single story I write. And I hear that a lot from environmentalists. They don't even want to talk to oil and gas companies because of positions they've taken in the past. Yeah, I understand that. But fundamentally, if, if we're moving forward and I'm a journalist, not a historian, I spend most of my time looking at the present and the future. But I don't ignore the past. It's all part of one story. But nonetheless, there are some people out there who dismiss entirely the industry because of what has transpired. So let's talk climate tech, clean tech, and any interesting things you're happen- seeing in terms of business, startups, et cetera, areas that have you excited. Yeah. I mean, that's something that one of the, the shifts in my job since I, I was at the Wall Street Journal uh, until 2017, and then I moved over to Axios. One of the great things about this company is that they let me cover whatever I want, which is great. And one of those areas is looking at all the new technology that's out there. Uh, I've I've had a, the pleasure of sitting down with Bill Gates a couple of times to 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 see what he's been up to, and he's been in, uh, investing more and more in some of these really uh, really innovative technologies that he and other experts say will be essential. One that's gotten a lot of attention is this idea uh, that we need to remove carbon dioxide that's already been emitted into the sky, however many years and decades ago, called carbon removal. And this is really interesting to me because a couple of years ago, it wasn't talked about at all. And now suddenly you have everybody from environmentalists to big oil companies investing in it because they think it's going to be a critical type of technology to address climate change. I likened it to liposuction for the planet because sort of a crude analogy, but I actually think it works and makes people cringe, uh, which is what this technology should probably do because it shows that we are we have gone beyond our means as a planet. Kind of like somebody who's a really overweight and now you need to take extreme measures. 
that's kind of like what we're doing. And so I'll be looking to see how that technology gets ramped up. Do you think the optimism surrounding that is based off of truth or based off of hope? I think it's based upon both, but also profits, the potential for profits. Uh, I'm, you know, a realist, I suppose, is the word to describe my views on this, um, if nothing else. And oil companies are investing in it because they're not altruistic. They see the writing on the wall and they see the world slowly, uh, but still relatively steadily moving toward addressing climate change. And they see this type of technology as an essential and potential pathway to address climate change and keep using oil and natural gas, which of course they would love as oil and natural gas companies. Uh, So I don't think it's based upon pure hope or pure profit. There has been a lot of technical progress in the last several years and a lot of scientific uh, agreement growing that we'll need this type of technology. So there's definitely a lot of there there, but at the same time, the, the types of technologies that are really going to get us across the finish line, if we get there, reducing emissions is going to be wind and solar. And also the least sexy technology, which is energy efficiency, which is, of course, not using it at all. Yeah, I worry about the liposuction because after you get liposuction, your arteries are still clogged and you're probably still going to die early. It's just not quite as early. And I think the metaphor still continues to apply, especially as conditions change. Right. Yeah. And that's that's a a real, real risk. I think, you know, uh, the the planet's dietitian might suggest we we cut our use of oil and natural gas while also doing the liposuction. So these are sort of imperfect analogies, but I often appeal to a human diet to try to make it more relatable to people because otherwise you don't necessarily understand it. You, I mean, you probably do, but other people, for example, one analogy I've used is climate change is like diabetes for the planet meaning that it it makes existing conditions worse. It makes flooding, it makes heat waves, it makes all these things that already existed worse than they were. I don't think climate change is an asteroid hitting the planet. I think it's diabetes. And if left unchecked, we could be in, as, as we're doing mostly, we could be in some serious trouble. Do you have any bold predictions for 2030? For uh, the, 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 the take decade as, Take it as you will. You know, I think there's already been so much action mostly in the form of rhetoric um, from entities like BlackRock, the world's largest uh, asset manager, to be more aggressive on climate change. I think people are right to be critical of this and to scrutinize whether or not this is just a bunch of words. But words need to precede action. Action doesn't happen on its own. And so I think we're going to see this continued and at an accelerated pace move by, you know, sort of the the boring people, the boring but powerful people in the world, the Black Rocks and and the corporate America. I think you're going to see much more accelerated attention on this issue from them. I, I still don't, I would not be a betting person on big climate policy happening in the United States anytime soon, because I just don't see Republicans coming around to something big. And as much as Democrats like to think that they can do it alone, uh, past president and research that I've reviewed indicate that that's very unlikely. So, and climate change is the type of problem that, although it has huge risks to go unchecked, the risks of there's also risks tied to addressing climate change, and those risks are realized far more quickly than the risks of climate change itself. So, for example, in Australia, of course, uh, that country is being r- ravaged by record-breaking bushfires, which scientists say are being exacerbated by global warming. Well, you know, I I went to Australia last year and I talked with uh, coal supporters. Australia is a huge coal exporter. And although they, some say they should take leadership because of what's happening with all the wildfires, coal is also a huge part of Australia's economy. And that population recently voted to continue the conservative leadership that wasn't prioritizing climate change. So there would likely be a short-term hit to coal. And that's a political reality. And so I think climate change is unlike a lot of other issues in that there's competing forces both ways. And I think the politics often favor not doing as much. And that's why this is such a tough issue. And that's why I think big comprehensive action like a big U.S. climate bill or a a successful Paris climate agreement seems relatively unlikely. To be successful, I feel like we need some type of enforcement. We would need a world police or a captain planet, so to speak, to actually enforce most of these these rules. 
Right. And, and we're in an era of our world that's the opposite of that. Trump hates multilateralism. So does Brazil's president. The world is fighting with each other more than it ever has. Uh, Europe is considering a carbon tariff for goods that are imported into Europe that don't have uh, climate policies. And just the other day, the Commerce Secretary of the Trump uh, administration said that they would likely respond somehow if Europe did that. They're not going to, the administration is not going to respond by saying, oh, let me institute a carbon tax. No, they'll respond by slapping tariffs on wine from Europe, if there's anything left from European wines after this latest round of tariffs. So I I wrote a column last year, and I, I often write everything I'm thinking, so that's why I keep saying that. I, you know, people like to think that because we all share this one planet, and the planet is what is getting hurt by climate change, that we should all work together. But that's a short-sighted and naive way to look at it. Unfortunately, climate change is poised to divide the world between the, the countries that are producing the fossil fuels that will be hurt and the countries that are impacted by climate change. And so, un- unfortunately, this isn't a very optimistic take, but I, I do think it's closer to reality in that I think climate change and action on climate change, both of those things will further divide the world. If you don't know your numbers, you don't know your business. Today's episode is brought to you guys by NetSuite by Oracle. I know I personally struggle with staying on top of business expenses, and that's even running a small team. I can't even imagine some of the large organizations out there. That's why those guys trust NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system that offers a full picture of your business, everything, one place, finance, inventory, HR, customers, you name it. No more guessing, no more worrying. Run your business like it's a business. Companies like Ring, Hint, Bowl, and Branch, and over 19,000 others trust NetSuite because if you don't have your house in order, it's real hard to build it bigger. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive their free guide, the seven key strategies to grow your profits at netsuite.com disruptors. That's D-I-S-R-U-P-T-O-R-S, netsuite.com disruptors to get that free guide, the seven key strategies to crushing growth for your business. I struggle with managing the numbers, you struggle with managing the numbers, and there's so much more that goes into running a business. Make sure you've got that top-level overview. netsuite.com slash disrupt. And now, on with the episode. What do you think happens in terms of, I've heard some argue that Trump's wall is actually meant as a, not immigration thing, but as a climate change immigration thing. I'm not sure. Thoughts, speculations? I don't know about that. I don't think, from Trump's perspective, that's it's hard to tell if he's smart enough. Well, Trump has been, I mean, he's very much a chameleon on most issues, right? He'll, he'll kind of change depending on who's around him. But there are two issues that he's been very solid on. He doesn't like China and he doesn't like OPEC. So the wall, I think, is a, is a political and also real thing that he has used as a, a way to rally a lot of his base. I, I don't think climate change is featured prominently in that conversation although I haven't also done a lot of research to, to, to look into that. So we've talked about why we don't think a wide-sweeping federal changes would happen in the U.S. when it came to climate. What do you think about a Paris Accord or something similar, but headed by China? That is something that I think is entirely possible, maybe not that coherently, but uh, there were two reports that came out last year in a span of a couple of weeks that really crystallized it for me. Uh, and the way I, I boil it down is that if we go on this current path that we're on, you know, accelerating the clean energy, energy revolution, which is, you know, really going gangbusters, that China will be the OPEC of the next energy revolution. And that's dangerous, I think, for the U.S. and others who are heavily dependent upon the, the minerals and the technologies that are, that are fueling the clean energy uh, sources like wind and solar and batteries. So I, I think it's a little too early to tell whether this is the issue of climate change is something that China really wants to take leadership on in a very proactive way. I think they're doing it right now for more insular reasons. I think their air pollution has been really bad. So getting off coal has been good for them from an immediate air pollution angle. But at the same time, they're financing coal around Asia. So if they really cared about climate change, they probably wouldn't be doing that. So, But I do think, and this is actually one thing that could actually unite Trump, who, like I said, hates China, and Democrats in the U.S. who also mostly aren't huge fans of China, to somehow do a climate and energy policy that responds to China. 
I think, again, that seems unlikely given other hurdles, but nonetheless, that is one common thread that I see. But I think absent America's ability to get it together, that I do think China is going to be the default winner. Is the responding therein the problem itself? Can we tackle a problem like climate change where we have an us versus them concept? Well, you know, in a, in a perfect world without any acrimony and wars and, and trade policy, we could all, you know, like the Paris deal or even before that, the Kyoto Protocol of 1997. I mean, all of these deals sort of envision this, this, Kumbaya, you know, why can't we be friends? And then yeah, we all got high and nothing changed. And that's and that's it's just a naive way to look at the world. Climate change is not going to like some like think of terrorism, like, you know, terrorism if somebody does a terrorist act that kills you, whether you're here or in Europe or in Africa, you die all the same, right? Death is the same at the end of the day, no matter where you are. Whereas climate change, there's a part of, there's going to be a decade, multi-decade period where Russia actually benefits from climate change. And they're talking about that. It's, you know, um, Vladimir Putin, even though he signed the Paris Accord, he also talks about the benefits. And so climate change affects the world vastly different. And that's why it's, it's I, you know, I think, no, there, it seems unlikely that we'll all come together. So do we just need to have somebody really powerful point weapons of mass destruction and say, get on board or else? Is there, is there another real way to do it? And I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit, but at the same yeah. time, at the same time, the benevolent dictator is the best as long as you don't hate the benevolent dictator and his son's not a, a jerk. Yeah, I think that seems unlikely. I think, you know, had Obama, had Hillary Clinton won, that administration would have kept the pressure up on China. And I think that pressure had an impact uh, to, to, to maybe not be totally to be totally gung-ho about aggressive action on climate change, but to not be, for example, funding coal plants in Vietnam. And that type of pressure is something that I think for global action on climate change is very much needed from the U.S. perspective. I think the U.S. is, you know, the largest economy in the world, the most influential. There's just no way to do big climate action without the U.S. So if that's your dictator, if Trump's miraculously decided to make climate change his top priority, uh, then then maybe. But uh, I, I, I think the status quo is the most likely going out into 2030 and beyond, which is increasing action because the economics are beginning to favor new technologies but also not enough action. And so, you know, more funding and attention to things like adapting to a warmer world that we're going to be living in regardless is also something that I think we'll see more of. Can you walk people through some of the basic science in terms of what you have right now and where we can expect to be in, say, 2050? Yeah, so there's actually a, a growing body of work just in the last several weeks that uh, shows that actually some of the, the prior scenarios of emissions uh, that really painted, you know, a, a terrible uh, amount of warming, like up to five degrees Celsius over the next century are actually not going to happen, which is good. That means it, because that those scenarios anticipated a, a, an incredible growth in coal overall in the world, whereas we're actually flattening out the the global demand for coal. So things aren't actually as bad as they seem, which is which is good. That said, uh, the world is still on a path to about three degrees warming, which is well past the two degree warming that the Paris Agreement um, had called to limit. So I think and that's Celsius, guys, not Fahrenheit. Celsius, I know. And I, I the the two degrees Celsius is three point six degrees Fahrenheit uh, for those living in America who are watching this, as opposed to the rest of the world. As a, in terms of the impact, I think you're going to see things like everything that's already happening now. Is just going to accelerate. So wildfires and heat, I, the heat waves in India are going to be disastrous. And the really terrible thing about climate change is that our responses to a warmer world are this negative feedback loop. So in India, a country that is a rapidly developing economy wants to have air conditioning and they want it more and more the hotter it gets. Climate change is making uh, the temperature hotter. So they get more air conditioning and the air conditioning, well, guess what? It emits greenhouse gas emissions, and the problem gets worse. And so that's one of the fascinating and really troubling parts about climate change is that the, the worse it gets, the it doubles back upon itself. And then, the, and then the solutions become more difficult. I think another one of the impacts, for example, I'm from the Pacific Northwest, 
you know, Seattle, everybody knows it rains. The impact in Seattle is going to be wetter winters. So that's not so bad, but hotter summers. And a lot of people in Seattle don't have air conditioning. And so, uh, but then there's going to be less minor, you know, more major impacts in places along the coast, of course, uh, sea level rise. I think uh, I did a story recently predicting the amount of more people that are going to be living under the high tide in the next 30 years. And it's in tens of millions of people. Tens of millions of people <laughs> in the US or worldwide? Worldwide. And how many years was that? Over 2050. But most of those places are in Southeast Asia that don't have the infrastructure to respond to this to the type of sea level rise. I mean, neither did uh, we had Hurricane Katrina. We didn't really have the infrastructure for that either. You could argue in a lot of ways that people get affected regardless. It's gonna be it's gonna be rough. Let's talk about some optimistic stuff outside of what we've been talking about so far. What technology or trend are you most excited about, and why? Well, I think one thing that I think is exciting is you know I've been covering this beat for a decade, and a lot of times people don't really care about it, and now suddenly people really care about it, <laughs> and. I, I'm noticing friends who, you know, don't really think about this issue, really engaging on it and asking about it. And I think that's really great because the first step to anything is knowledge and awareness. So I think that's really good. I mean, it's the mirror image of the problem getting worse. But nonetheless, I think attention is great. And I think, you know, there's uh, so many, uh, you know, entrepreneurial opportunities to, to capitalize on both a warming world, but also obviously the policies to address it. I did a recent column about a company called Arcadia Power, which is one of many sort of tech-focused companies that enable people to get renewable energy into their homes. And so I, I signed up for their their options, and I sort of experienced it as a consumer. And you know, I had a colleague here at Axios who showed me, you know, the solar panels on his home. He has an app that helps to to, to give him live updates of how much energy he's getting. And I think that's great. And I think one of the most difficult things about energy and climate change is that we don't think about the energy that we consume. And so we don't think about the consequences of it. So the more we think about that, the more awareness can happen. Uh, and then, you know, everything flows from there. How do we push more awareness? Is that a company deciding to create some type of standard? We I mean, we have organic standards, we have different nutritional labels. Is that some company or some country creating the standard of this has to be issued on packaging or etc.? Well, you know, the, the Obama administration did have what they called the social cost of carbon, uh, which I never really found that applicable, to be honest. But nonetheless, that tried to put sort of a monetary value on various climate change causing fuels and things like that. The Trump administration has mostly done away with that. But nonetheless, something like that, I think, could carbon calories. So yeah, carbon. I, I, would, I would bet I money. When, you know, I would bet money when people walk into the restaurants in the states that require you to have calories listed on the menu, they order less calories. I would bet Actually, money. Actually, I saw a study that said that don't that doesn't change really, much. Really, that's disappointing. Yeah. Come on. I know because I change my eating habits when I see that that quesadilla has 12, 1,200 calories. Which means I saw that other people are jumping for even further the other way. Ooh, that one's got a lot. Let's even go for more. I'm shocked at how much calories are in, in certain foods. In that same vein, Google last year or the year before created this tool where you can see how much energy and carbon emissions and water you use. And it was really interesting. But the problem with it is you had to go online, you had to press all these buttons, and who the hell is going to do that? You know, if if there was some sort of you kind of you know when you're at the airport and you fill up your water and there's this little button saying how many you know plastic bottles have been avoided uh you know maybe you could have while you're taking a shower this is how much water you're wasting and a little ticker you know things like that that can really make it more present to you because i think we just don't uh we don't engage with our energy enough to care i would agree but it's also like putting the screen time thing on facebook facebook's business model is to keep you there and miserable so they don't want you keeping track of that. It's, uh, yeah, casinos, you can't see out the windows. So they don't want you to know what time it is. It's all, about, it's all about the incentives. Right. And I think these companies who are at their core profit-seeking companies in a capitalistic society, they want to, to draw awareness enough so they're looking to be good citizens. But the push, when push comes to shove, ultimately these companies, the ones producing oil, natural gas, and coal, are going to have to either go out of business or change the type of energy they're providing. And I think you're definitely seeing some, the early steps of trying to change. But I think, you know, the, one of the common talking points, which is true that oil companies give is that oil demand continues to go up. 
And it does. So, and that's because we all use it, maybe not to get around in a car. I don't drive a car, but plastics. We use a ton of plastic. It's a great tool for a lot of things, but nonetheless, it's very polluting and comes from oil. Uh, so I think I'll be looking to see if people really change the, their habits, whether driven by policies or otherwise, things like plastic as well. Yeah, I saw a really interesting startup that was repurposing plastic into new things. If we could really get plastic recycling into, essentially, if we could make things cradle to cradle for production, we would be a really long way in terms of solving a lot of problems. Yeah, I tend to think, you know, this this world can't get recycling right. If we can't get recycling right, when we're seeing the blood of a turtle, you know, with a plastic straw up its nose, if that doesn't get us to change our habits on recycling, it's much harder to wrap our heads around something we can't even see, uh, which, which is one reason why I've always thought big action on climate change, while global activism is important and Greta Thunberg is having a profound effect on the debate. Ultimately, you need to get the likes of ExxonMobil to see how they can make money in a climate uh, addressing world. Otherwise, we're not going to get big change. You need that or the gun to the head. It's got to be one or the other because people, I mean, we're evolved to be lazy and to survive and to stick our heads in the sand. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's problematic in this situation. Right. And I, I, I think when you say the gun to your head, I mean, one thing that I look at is what levers could destabilize the status quo. And that could be what, because right now the status quo for companies is mostly okay. Whether you're Microsoft or Exxon, the status quo isn't terrible when it comes to climate change. If, for example, you see a lawsuit, one of many that have been filed against Exxon, if one of those has a shot in hell of getting to trial, then I've often said that Exxon and other oil companies might be more willing to come to the table to try to support something in exchange for getting that lawsuit to go away. We saw a similar a dynamic play out with the tobacco companies. Uh, I'm not saying that's going to be the way it happens, but that's one of the levers that I look at. Maybe, but yet the EU is suing tech companies left and right and basically giving them parking tickets, and it's not changing much in terms of action. Right, which is, you know, the the whole cigarette um, dynamic played out in a different time. I think now what would happen is things are so much more polarized that I think entities might just dig in their heels. And anyways, any, I mean, a carbon tax right now would actually benefit ExxonMobil because it has so much natural gas. It would have to be a very high carbon tax. And that's one of the, the criticisms of the policy. But nonetheless, it's, it's more, it would be more than we're doing now. What's one topic we haven't talked about that you think we should? Hmm. I think, I don't know. I, I feel like we've covered a lot of ground. Hasn't been the most upbeat conversation. But, you know, I, I do like to emphasize that there's so many interesting things going on. I mean, I, I reluctantly don't have time to cover most of them. I get so many pitches on interesting things that I just have to delete because I don't have time. But I read them, uh, some of them. And, you know, I think while some can find it uh, a little bit overwhelming, and some scientists would say defeatist, uh, there's also a lot happening and, and and that's what I focus on. I and that's the the reason why I'm happy, very happy, and I don't lose sleep at night over anything uh, related to climate change because it's it's a it, it's it. There's a lot to be to be interested in on this, and I think the data I had said earlier about how emissions are actually not going up as much as we had previously thought a couple of uh, you know maybe a decade or so ago, and so I think there's there's a, there's a lot going on, and I would just encourage people to focus a little bit less on the what we call in the climate and energy circles, the climate apocalypse porn, and a little bit more on like the really interesting things that are happening. You say that, but if it bleeds, it leads. There's a reason, I know, there's a reason, there's a reason why the news is miserable and makes your life generally worse. Well, I would say that Axios lets me write about whatever I want. And that is not apocalypse porn. Okay. Fair point, fair point. Especially, it depends on the, the audience you're going for as well. That's true. I would say I'm, I'm going for an audience that is interested in learning more about. Are you guys ads-based or subscription-based? We are ad-based. Okay. And we get advertising from all sorts of companies, some of them oil companies. And, you know, I'm, I'm used to the criticisms about that. And... I just remind people that there's a very clear firewall 
between those two parts of the company and I can write about whatever I want. Firewall, gotta love the puns. I want one last thing from you in terms of a quote, a call to action before you tell people a little bit more about you and where to find you. Well, I would sort of question, I would sort of question the premise because as a reporter, and I know I'm going back on this, you're a, human, but I, you're a person too. You don't have I to be a, a reporter right now if you don't <laughs> want to. Well, but I, it's not my position to call to action to get people to go protest in the street about any number of things. So the thing I would say beyond reading Axios is to become informed about this topic and to actually, and not just like, not just read Axios, but actually engage with your utility, your electricity provider. Hey, where does my electricity come from? Or, and actually in, learn, like spend some time. And I need to do more of this myself, but spend more time learning about recycling, which is so boring, but so important. For example, I recently learned that, you know, in a, in a milk container or a, a, any sort of plastic, plastic container with a lid, you have to not only discard the lid, but the little round piece of plastic that you disconnect from the lid, that needs to be cut off as well. Otherwise, it doesn't work when you recycle it. And so every time I go throw like a, a milk container in my recycling, I, I, cut, I use scissors and I cut it off. And I'm always terrified I'm going to hurt myself just trying to recycle. But nonetheless, I think informing ourselves is the most important thing we can do. And and so that's why that would be my call for action. I think we need regulation saying all future plastics need to be recyclable. And just to wipe the hands of that, I get so pissed when I go to Starbucks and you see how many cups people just put in the garbage because Starbucks doesn't have a goddamn recycling bin. Yeah, I, I try to bring a reusable mug everywhere I go. But I, I, I know it's infuriating. And, and again, I mean, if we can't get recycling right, but stay tuned, I'm going to be doing more on, on plastics. Stay tuned, guys. There's some interesting stuff ahead of and there's some interesting opportunities. Make sure you guys check those out. Try to think of ways to save the world and make money in the process. Those are the business opportunities of the future, in my opinion. Where can people find you? They can find me on the internet, on Amy A. Harder, uh, my Twitter account, Amy A. Harder, and also on Axios.com. We have a daily energy newsletter called Generate, which I send out every Monday with my column called The Harder Line where I cover all of these topics and more. And people can email me as well, which is easily accessible on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's amy at axios.com. The harder line. I dare you to take a harder line. Thanks for coming on today, Amy. Yeah, thank you. And thanks for tuning in, guys. Go do something that matters. Help the world, save the planet, do a little bit of recycling, and stop buying so much goddamn. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 